Tonight, uh, we continue our study through the book of Genesis, so if you need a Bible, would you put up your hand? And uh, Todd will be glad to get one into your hands there, and if you need a Bible, you don't own a Bible, you can keep that Bible for yourself. Uh, we we want to make that a gift to you. Uh, and when you get your Bible open to Genesis chapter 32, and just by way of review, last week in Genesis chapter 31... Uh, we looked at Jacob moving on, ultimately, from his uncle Laban. These 20 years that he had dedicated to serving, seven for his wife Leah, which he thought was going to be Rachel. Turned out his uncle tricked him. Then seven more years he served for his wife Rachel, so now he ends up 14 years, two wives, and then he serves another six years beyond that for this blessing of uh, and promise of all this livestock and, and cattle, and, and, and there was great success in all of that, but all along the way, we know Jacob was Jacob, and Jacob, his name meant dirty, sneaky thief, conniver, trickster, that's who he was, and that's who his uncle Laban was. And they were constantly trying to out-con each other. Uh, he lived 20 years like that. 20 years of constantly waiting to be tricked by his uncle or trying to trick his uncle. And then just both of them constantly trying to outsmart each other. Uh, and, and so now in chapter 31, we saw this major turning point, though, in which Jacob realized it was time to put the old ways behind him. And we talked about how Laban was this representation of the world and the things of the world and the desires of the world. And it was time for him to rid himself of the things of the world and to move forward, to press on. And so now this week, we get into yet another life lesson for Jacob, another massive turning point for Jacob. And in this, he still is pressing onward and having to deal with some heavy stuff from his past, named Esau, his brother. If you remember, he, he tricked his brother out of his birthright. He stole the birthright right, right away from his brother. And God still has great work to do. So we dive in, chapter 32 of Genesis, verse 1. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So we stop for a moment looking at this, and the angels of God that met him, that came to him. Now remember all that he had been through. Remember how he constantly was scheming and devising plans and plots to take matters into his own hands, to do things his way, operating in the flesh, taking this step, though, forward now, away from the things of the past, and now, as he moves forward, and the last thing we saw is that Jacob offered a sacrifice to the Lord as a memorial of moving onward, moving on from the ways of the past. And now the next thing that we see with Jacob is that the angels of the Lord met him. The angels of God met him. And if that is not confirmation that you are walking in God's will, then what else is, right? 
And now it's not always going to be like that, right? Sometimes when we're walking with God and we're, we're walking in his will, there is attack from the enemy that comes. Jacob wasn't there. He wasn't in the place of this attack from the enemy. Jacob was this really a, an immature guy in the faith really new to this taking steps of faith. And, and so along the way, God says, hey, I'm, I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna protect you. And, and regardless of the attacks that come from the enemy, we need to remember that God protects us. Jacob call, gives this recognition of the place and said, this is God's camp. And the name of the place, as he calls it, Mahanaim, is translated to God's hosts or two hosts. That there is this recognition of the, that he is seeing these angels of God before him. The reality is the angels of God have been with him, protecting him. But now he sees them. He recognizes it. There's a revelation of this before him. And, and the old Jacob may have in the past said, hey, I'm doing okay here. Look at me walking with God. Look at me doing what God told me to do. But instead he's recognizing, no, God is working. This is God's camp and his presence, his protection is known in this place, giving credit to God and not to himself and recognizing the hand of God, recognizing the protection of God and becoming more and more sensitive to the things of God. Look at, get the picture here that he is literally being escorted through the wilderness by God, by the angels of God. God is protecting him. God protecting him from Laban, right? Because he still has this idea in his mind that Uncle Laban's gonna try to get him. And from his brother Esau, from what was behind and what was in front of him. But God says, here's the angels. You can see them. You can be sure that my hand of protection is over you, over what's behind you and over what's in front of you. The children of God, the people of God, as we walk by faith and not by sight, as we walk in the ways of God, in the will of God, we can know, we can be confident that his hand of protection is over us. Verse three, we continue, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will, I'm sorry, I'm going back to 31, wrong spot on the page. That's a good reminder, though, of course, because that's what God promised him, and he can move forward in that promise. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Ser, the country of Edom, and he commanded them, saying, speak thus to my Lord. Esau, thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he also is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two companies and he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks, then the other company, which is left, will escape. So Jacob sends his messengers ahead 
And in that, he's looking for reconciliation. And reconciliation is a good thing to be looking for. He's trying to make things right with his brother, but he has an idea of how that's going to happen. But here's the good part. He starts with humility. Reconciliation starts with humility. We can't come about something. If he came and, and he sent an army out to meet Esau, there would be problems. That's not the way of reconciliation. He knew it even according to Jewish custom. That's not the way of reconciliation. We'll get into the, the Jewish custom of reconciliation a little bit later. But he sends them ahead looking for this reconciliation that starts with humility as he says that I am your servant, thus your servant Jacob. That's the first thing. He sends them ahead. Go tell him, my brother, that his servant Jacob seeks to come and meet with him. That I come in peace. That I've been with, my, with, with, our, with Laban and stayed there until now. Right? So I come in peace and he comes in humility. Humility is a good start to reconciliation. That followed then by he addresses the concern that Esau may have had. What does he say? Verse five, I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. He's saying that I wanna find favor in your sight, saying I come in peace and I seek reconciliation from you, my Lord, putting Esau on a pedestal, buttering him up a little bit. And he's not coming to say and puffing out his chest, I have oxen and donkey and flock and, 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 and male and female servants that I'm all well off, Esau. Look at me, your little brother. I told you, you see, I took that birthright and look at all that I have. That's not what's happening. What he's saying is that I have great wealth and I'm not here to steal anything from you. It's a good starting point. He's taking care of, so he starts with humility, then he takes care of the concern because all that Esau knew of his brother Jacob, we know, we studied it, they, they were constantly butting heads, constantly in contention with each other. And then the last thing that took place between them is that Jacob stole the birthright from Esau. So now if he's coming back, what would naturally be Esau's thought? Well, here comes Jacob coming to trick me again. Come in to steal something. What are you going to steal from me now, Jacob? But Jacob says, listen, I come in humility. I come to reconcile. I come in peace. And I have not come, certainly have not come to steal anything from you. And there's a recognition of his own sinfulness in that sense. And it's the first time we see Jacob recognizing his sin of stealing from his brother. And we even saw last week how he studied in 31 that he's so quick to point out the fact that Laban was constantly tricking him and lying to him, but wouldn't see that sin of deceit in his own life, of lying and stealing. But now he recognizes. He said, my brother, I have not come to steal anything from you. So further then, it's the, the field report comes back, right? Mission report. They come back, hey, um, your brother is also coming to see you. You're coming to see Esau. Esau's coming to see you. But it's not good news. 
you might imagine, hey, you're, there could be this beautiful reconciliation. And Jacob is thinking, all right, I want to send you guys out and get a little lay of the land, a little picture of what's going on. How's Esau? Is there a chance of re- reconciliation? And the report comes back and like, well, no, it doesn't look like it. He's got 400 men. 400 men to come against you is the idea. And Jacob thought, of course, this was an army that has come to destroy him as he goes to meet his brother. Because previously, the last thing that Esau said to him is that he he vowed that he would kill him. And so obviously, obviously Jacob is responding in fear now. You know, so quickly here, Jacob forgot the heavenly hosts. He forgot the hand of the Lord. And I just read it even on accident in chapter 31, verse three, when God said to him, I will be with you. So quickly he forgot that promise. You know, that's, that's this great picture of the Bible is this idea that God is desiring fellowship with man. Nearness, reconciliation, and he, and he promises throughout his word, and Jesus promises that I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But how quickly do we forget that promise when we're faced down with difficult circumstances, when we're faced down with 400 men that we think are coming against us, but maybe they're not. It's all perspective, and we forget that we actually have the hosts of heaven by our side. As the children of God, we have the hosts of heaven. And we're so worried. Oh, no. We're concerned about the the enemy that's coming after us. And, And we make the enemy oftentimes flesh and blood, but we're told that we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. If we're battling against principalities, then we should know that the principalities of God, the heavenly hosts, are fighting on our side. That's who we have. Jesus said, I will not leave you. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to be our helper, to abide with us forever. So quickly, Jacob forgot the heavenly hosts and the protection that was with him. How quickly we forget what God is doing in the midst of his calling. And we try to take his calling into our hands. And he's working. God is always working in both the seen and the unseen. There was a time that Jacob saw the heavenly hosts. So it's easy. But we could see the heavenly hosts. Imagine, just imagine, we've got heavenly hosts standing on our side, and we can see them. We're like, (laughs) I got nothing to worry about. This is great. Imagine how, how glorious and powerful these heavenly hosts must have looked for him to say, this is God's camp. I got nothing to worry about. I mean, imagine the greatest warrior uh, that you could ever imagine, and they're even more impressive than that. And that's who's standing on his side. And now for a, for a time, he saw them. And when he saw them, he had great confidence, but God is still working in the unseen. The heavenly hosts are still there protecting the children of God 
but so quickly we forget. And why do we forget? Why, how, how is it that we so easily forget that God is working in the unseen, that God is still in our midst even though we can't see him? Because of fear. Because of circumstance. And we, all we see is, or all we hear is, there's 400 men. Esau vowed to kill me and now there's 400 men with Esau. This is bad news. See, God had it all worked out because God is working in the unseen as well as the seen things. And so because of this now, verse eight, what happens? If Esau comes, and he's, or seven and eight, he splits his whole crew, all of his people, all of the livestock, he splits them into two companies. Okay, so if Esau comes and he takes out one group, we still got another group and they can escape So our tribe, so to speak, still carries on. He's devising a plan. He goes back to his scheming ways, devising a plan to outlast or to escape his brother Esau. Forgetting that the heavenly hosts were right there with him. Verse nine. Then Jacob said, O God, my father, Abraham and God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant, for I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. He goes to prayer. After a momentary lapse in judgment, after a little bit of freaking out, Jacob turns to prayer. Prayer is essential right? Yet, we often go to prayer after we freak out a little bit, right? That's what happens. We, we do exactly what Jacob did. We, we get into this place, we get the bad news or what we think is bad news. It's, it's all trouble. Our circumstances are impossible. There's 400 men coming after me, an army that is out to kill me and my whole family, and so we go crazy a little bit, and then we come up with a little bit of a plan that's a really half-baked plan. It's not going to work out so great, but we think it's a good idea. And then we're like, oh, maybe I should pray. <laughs> oh, I forgot. Maybe I should give it to the Lord. We go to prayer, but after we devise our plan of escape, we got to have our escape plan. Just in case, just in case God is not faithful, let me have an escape plan. That's a a problem, isn't it? Because God is faithful. And you know what happens if we start to question the faithfulness of God or the promises of God, and then we go right to our escape route. We go to our escape plan, plan B, which we actually treat it as plan A sometimes, don't we? 
But plan A should be pray. And there should be no plan B. We even will go and we'll, we'll go into prayer and ask God to bless the plan that we devised in the flesh. We're like, oh, everything's terrible. All right, what am I gonna do? Oh, here's what I'm gonna do. And we come up with our little scheme and then we're like, oh God, would you bless my terrible plan? But we wouldn't admit that it's a terrible plan. We're just like, God bless my ways, please help me. And then we try to convince ourselves that God is actually in our plan. But Jacob, nonetheless, he, he did pray. And in this prayer, he is pleading with God. This is a prayer of desperation. Really what he's finally admitting is everything depends on you. It's about time. And would we cry out in desperation to God before we get to the place of seeing 400 coming against us? Would we cry out in desperation recognizing we just need him? We don't need a plan from him. We just need him. And that's what Jacob's gonna learn throughout this chapter. And he's gonna learn the hard way, but he'll learn it. And we'll get into that a little bit later. And, and so he's pleading with God in desperation, saying, God, it all depends on you. And in that, he's praying. In verse nine, he says this, oh God, my father, uh, the God of my father Abraham and Isaac, uh, father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. He's calling upon the Lord and he's calling on his purpose. He's praying. He said, look, it's about your purpose. You called me. I obeyed. So what's your plan? What's your purpose here? Further, verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I cross over the Jordan with my staff and now have become two companies. He's really saying, look, I'm not worthy and I tried to figure this out. I crossed the Jordan, I got two companies. That's a plan, can you do something with it, right? But he's saying, I'm not worthy as recognizing his position and recognizing God's position. So a prayer for God's purpose, a prayer recognizing God's position, a prayer then, verse 11, he says, deliver me. A prayer asking for God's protection. Deliver me. Finally, the right response to a terrible circumstance. The right response to this total place of fear and anxiety when you're totally up against the wall. Deliver me. From the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. He asks for God's protection, but he also confesses his fear. Would you call it what it is? We, won't, we don't often like to admit that we have fear, do we? For much of my life, I will be honest with you, I was in a place to say, I'm not afraid of anything. I said it for my, all of my teen years, most of my 20s, probably even late 20s into like 30, I'm like, I'm not afraid of anything. That was so dumb to say that. Now, in, in reality, I wanna say I have nothing to be afraid of. I don't need to have any fear because I believe in Jesus, that he is mighty, he is powerful, and in, through my relationship with him, I have victory over sin and death. 
resurrected in Christ. Amen. But the reality is, right, the harsh reality, even though in faith I say I have nothing to be afraid of, the harsh reality is I am afraid. I am afraid when my back's against the wall. I am afraid when there's 400 in front of me and Laban behind me. And if we're all being honest, in our flesh, in the plans that we come up with, we have a lot to be afraid of until we put it in the Lord's hands and we say, address my fear because I can't address my fear. My ways are going to fail. So God, I fear this. Would you take care of it? And let your perfect love cast out all fear. Not my perfect plan, what I think is my perfect plan, but your perfect love casts out all fear. And his perfect love is his perfect plan. And that's how we can say that it casts out all fear. He has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Where's Jacob? He's not walking in, a, in power and love and a sound mind. He's all over the map. He's freaking out. But he, he prays, he cries out, deliver me. And he confesses his fear before God, putting it in his hands. And then verse 12, he said, for, for you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered. What is he doing here? He's going back to God's promise. This is all his prayer for God's purpose and God's position, God's protection, and God's promise. Remind yourself of God's promise to move forward in faith. And you know what he's also doing? He's reminding God of of his promise. God doesn't need to be reminded, but when we remind him, he's like, oh yeah, you remember, so let me show you. Let me show you. He makes good on his promises. Always. That is an absolute. He will follow through. And us reminding God of the promises that he's given us are for him to say, yep, I did that. Yep, I'm doing that. And so he's reminding himself to move forward in faith and he's reminding God that he would see God follow through. Verse 13 then, so he lodged there that same night and took uh, what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one saying, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, they are your servant Jacob's. 
It is a present sent to my Lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, in this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. What camp? God's camp. Remember that. He was in God's camp. So, Jacob goes a little crazy for a minute, freaking out over everything that's going on, comes up with this plan for himself, then is like, wait, let me pray, and he's committed to the Lord in prayer and saying, God, it's in your hands, but, verse 13 through 21 that we just read, Jacob is still Jacob. Jacob's still working on ridding himself of his old ways of devising his plans. And he couldn't quite leave matters completely up to God. And we can so relate, right? We come up with a plan, no, let me pray. Then we pray, and then we come up with another plan. And we think that our prayer led to God's plan. And so he does. He comes up with this plan. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send out three droves. And, and, and in that, it's going to be basically peace offering. And, and what he was practicing, putting this into practice here, was called the trespass offering. Or we would translate it even today as a peace offering, right? That's the idea of it. And this trespass offering was a part of Israel's sacrificial system. And in that trespass offering, it taught that man, if a man wanted to get right with God, then he must get right with the person that he had wronged, making restitution and adding even more than he stole, taking reconciliation into his own hands. And, and, it, and there's, look at the long list that we read of all that he sent on ahead as a trespass offering to his brother Esau. It's quite a bit. And it gives us a picture of Jacob's wealth that was pretty ridiculous. If you imagine all that he sent on and said, here, this is for Esau. And yet he still had plenty more to go. And so he does. He sends it ahead, but yet still remaining. Trying to, as he says in verse 20, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And here's the thing, Jacob was so willing to try to appease his brother Esau with the present, with everything that goes before, yet he was not so willing to surrender himself. Here you go, here you go. Here you go, Esau, and we'll do the same. If something's happened between you, know, you and uh, your, your, your spouse, maybe, or your ki kids are good at this. They do something wrong, and then they come all like, oh, I'm sorry, here, I drew you a picture. You know, Here's a flower. It's not a flower, it's a weed. You know? But we do that, and we're like, oh, here's a peace offering. I've got something for you to try to, to smooth things over a little bit. 
The reality is, and that was his practice to try to get right with God. But what does God desire? Us. He doesn't want just all this stuff that we want to try to give him. He wants us to be surrendered to him. That's how we get right with God. That's how we bring true reconciliation. So God had to work that out in Jacob, and that's what we're going to see here in the rest of this chapter. Verse 22 And he arose that night. Remember now, Jacob had stayed there by himself in God's camp. He arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. And he took them, sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Here he is. He already sent all of his servants and and the livestock and now it's just his family. And then he sends them ahead over the brook All that he has is gone. And he crosses over the brook. And he sends all of them ahead, and here he is by himself. He left himself no way out. This is a good starting point. Total vulnerability. Ready? Here I am. And it's, right? He's just, okay, he crossed over. There was no going back. There was, there was a, a river. There was Uncle Laban. And ahead of him was Esau. No way out. Going to meet Esau, which he feared would not go well. He gave himself no escape. Remember, he came up with a plan that was a plan of escape. He sent on everybody ahead as a peace offering. But now it's just him. No way out. He was going to face his brother Esau. He even, uh, he even sends all of his stuff ahead with no distractions. And then he was left alone, as verse 24 tells us. We need to be left alone sometimes. When, we're, when, we, have, when we have stuff to deal with, when we've got sin to handle, when we've got fear to face down, sometimes we need to be left alone so we can just have stillness before the Lord. God wants to get us alone to deal with us and to connect with us. That's what he was longing for with Jacob. He's like, let's have real relationship here. And Jacob kept calling on him as the God of my father Isaac, grandfather Abraham. But God wanted to be his God. He wants to be your God. He doesn't want you to just ride the coattails of somebody else's faith. He wants an encounter with you. You know, it's so easy to just get caught up in everything, caught up in fear, caught up in stress, caught up in all the worries of life. Look, he had his family. He had all his stuff. And he said, you know what? You go ahead. And he didn't know exactly what he was going to encounter, but it was necessary for him to be left alone. You know, 
Look, for, for my wife and I, we take time and we go on date nights. Why? Because we need to connect on date night without the kids, without the chaos, without all the distractions of life. We need to just get away. We can focus and we can escape the craziness. He spent that night in prayer. Up to this point, he had done things on his own, but it was time to seek God. He was fearing what would happen, and it was time to seek God. And, and so here, verse, as it says, he was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint and he wrestled with him. A man wrestled with Jacob, not Jacob wrestled with. Now, so what, what do we know? That God wanted something from Jacob. God showed up. This is, this is known as a Christophany in the Old Testament, meaning that this is Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ showed up to Jacob to wrestle with Jacob. You know why? Because Jacob had been wrestling with God his entire life. And God wanted something from him. He wanted Jacob. Jacob already sent everything he had. Now he had nothing else, and here comes God. Okay, I got Jacob alone. Jacob's trying to flex, right, constantly. That's how he lived his life, scheming, conniving, trying to flex. Look at all of what I got. Here's my peace offering. All right, family, you go ahead. Look at me. His whole life, that's how he lived. And God's like, all right, you got nothing left, Jacob. Now it's just you and me. Let's hang out. Let's talk. God wanted something from Jacob. He wanted a surrender of his self-reliance. He wanted a surrender of his schemes, of his ways, of his plans. He wanted a surrender of Jacob. And he came. God showed up to take it by force if necessary. Guys, don't get to that place. Everything is sent on ahead. He literally rid himself of everything. He's at rock bottom. And now God's coming to take by force his will if necessary. And they wrestled until the breaking of day. Man, they wrestled all night. Whew. I, I just, I wish I could picture this. I wish we could really understand what this looked like. I mean, there was some great heavyweight battles that we've seen throughout, you know, boxing history. Maybe you're, you know, you like MMA or something, UFC, and you're, you're like, yeah, what a great fight. We think back to the, the days of Tyson and Holyfield, the first one, not the, not the ear one, you know. Um, but some great heavyweight battles and they go toe to toe and they're just pounding on each other and pounding on each other. Like what a great fight. Man, those are nothing. Look at, I, I wish we could really imagine what was going on here. What a fight it would have been. 
They went all night long. And this is really just such a picture of Jacob's life because he had been wrestling with God his whole entire life. And so now they are toiling through the night. And he, it says, uh, he saw, he, speaking of God, saw that he did not prevail. Now, not because of Jacob's strength, but because of Jacob's stubbornness. What is God seeking from Jacob? Surrender. He doesn't want to just take Jacob out. He doesn't want to win a a, a wrestling match with Jacob. He wants to win Jacob. God could have been like, hey, Jacob, all right, we're done. Now moving on. But no, he's wrestling with him and trying to win Jacob, not win the wrestling match. It wasn't because of Jacob's strength, but because of Jacob's stubbornness. And he he realized, he recognized that he did not prevail over Jacob's will just yet. You read that and you think maybe, well, was this a fair fight? Was this an even fight? Like, was Jacob that strong and powerful that he, he actually stayed in the ring with God? No, it had nothing to do with strength. It had everything to do with surrender. And God was trying to get him to surrender. He could have wiped him out and ended the fight at any time. And sometimes we're, we're fighting with God thinking that we're doing well. Like, oh, yeah, I'm staying in the ring. I can hold my own. I'm doing all right. But that's only by appearance of the flesh. God wants surrender from us. And he doesn't just want to force us into submission. You know, if, if you know, you know, UFC or mixed martial arts, there is a, there's a submission, Right? You try to get somebody into a submission hold. Uh, I got to join my friend Mike Bowen out in Colorado in some Brazilian jiu-jitsu training. And it's important that you tap out at a certain point. If you don't, something is going to be dislocated or broken, permanently damaged, right? Ligament tears, all this stuff. If people are not willing to tap out, serious long-term damage is going to happen. So there needs to be a submission. They, they go at it, these UFC fighters, they wrestle, and it, it's, it's crazy. And, and they tap out if they're in a submission hold, if they're in that point, and they recognize, I can't get out, and if I don't tap out, I am going to be permanently damaged. Jacob would not tap out. That's what we see in this to say that he realized he did not prevail against Jacob. Jacob would not tap out. He needed to be forced into submission. As we do at times as well. How defeated he must have felt. And so further, sorry, uh, I read it in... uh, In verse 25, it says, then he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. He wouldn't tap out. That was on Jacob. If he just tapped out, surrendered to God, he wouldn't be walking with a limp the rest of his life. 
It's, it, there's a practical application, you understand, as I'm talking about this UFC fighting. If you don't tap out, there's permanent damage. You're going to walk with a limp or your arm that's you know, dislocated or whatever. You need surgery, this and that. There's problems. Jacob wouldn't tap out, but God had to force him into submission. How defeated Jacob must have felt after he thought, man, I'm, I'm battling with the Lord. I'm staying in the ring all night long. He thought it was a good fight <laughs> until God knocked his hip out of joint. Verse 26, and he said, let me go for the day breaks. This is now, remember who Jacob is and remember how he was born into this world. Jacob, the heel snatcher, the heel catcher. And how was he born into this world? Grabbing onto his brother's heel. Not letting go. Always grabbing at and claiming some sort of blessing for himself. I want, I need, I want to satisfy myself, my flesh in my ways. And here he is battling with the Lord. The Lord knocks his hip out of joint and he's still holding on, not letting go. I want blessing. I have been fighting my whole life for blessing. And God says, let me go. God is saying, Jacob, this can't go on forever. Jacob had lost and you get the picture now, after his hip is knocked out of joint, he had been fighting with the Lord. He's, he's now permanently damaged, and yet he's still holding on. No, I'm not letting go. Kind of that coward move. No, I'm not letting go. He had lost. The fight was over, but he wouldn't admit it. Still, he wouldn't admit it. And God's saying, this can't go on forever. But coming slowly now to a place of surrender after wrestling with him, he says, let me go. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And this wasn't Jacob bossing God around, but pleading with God at this point, finally realizing, I need blessing. I need God's hand on my life. Not my ways, Jacob was always looking for blessing, not the right one. But now that he had God incarnate, right with him, I need blessing. I need it from you. He stole his brother's birthright and blessing from his father. He took matters into his own hands to find the wife that he thought was the blessing he deserved and all of the cattle and the, 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 the wealth that he deserved, this is what he thought he deserved, grabbing at blessings constantly. And now he finally realizes what he needed all along, God's blessing. That's what would fulfill him. Jacob was in a place where all he could do, all that was left was to cling to Jesus. That's the place of surrender. I said before, you know, it's kind of a coward move, but that's kind of what God is looking for from us sometimes, to realize how weak we are 
so that all we can do is cling and say, I need you. I've got nothing else. I've sent everything on ahead, my family, my wealth, my brother's out to kill me, my uncle is, the ways of the world are behind me, I've got the river at my back, I've got nothing else. I have toiled, I have fought my whole life against you, I have wrestled through the night, and now I'm damaged permanently, and all I have left is Jesus. Let it not go that far. And maybe you've already been there. Keep clinging to Jesus. That's what we need, to cling to Jesus and cry out for him. Cry out for blessing. Jacob was going to meet Esau, who he thought was his enemy. That's why he spent the night in prayer. But he came to realize that his own flesh was his enemy. And his his flesh needed to be conquered by God. It had nothing to do with Esau. It had nothing to do with Laban. It had nothing to do with all of his circumstances. It had everything to do with Jacob and that his flesh needed to be conquered by God. And here it's happening. Verse 27 then, he says, so he said to him, God says to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. He hasn't prevailed in his flesh. He has prevailed in his surrender and clinging to relationship with God. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you, are, that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. God changes his name from Jacob, dirty, sneaky thief, conniver, con man, trickster, to Israel. Israel means governed by God because he had surrendered. Finally, he had surrendered to God. Further, the meaning of Israel is that God rules. And God blessed him there. Verse 30 then, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. This is all a reminder. He walked with a hip to remember what God, with a limp in his hip to remember what God has done. To rem- he, he remembers the place, which means the face of God. I've seen the face of God, and here he has finally recognized his encounter with God. It wasn't just about his father, his grandfather, the God of his father Isaac, but he has seen God face to face. This place he remembered as the place where he saw God. And he remembers because he walks with a limp for the rest of his life. 
Let us remember what God has done. And I pray it doesn't have to be with a limp. But sometimes, if we're going to battle God our entire lives, he may have to knock our hip out of joint. And there may be some permanent damage. And we walk with a limp. But we remember, with that limp, we remember what God has done. To the point now that the whole nation of Israel for generation after generation has remembered what God has done. And out of this, of course, Israel, the nation, governed by God, ruled by God. The centerpiece. Geographically, the centerpiece of so much prophecy, of all historical events that are have taken place and will take place, a place that we need to keep our eyes on. But we need to remember what God has done. Finally, Jacob was surrendered to the Lord. And you know, he's gonna learn very soon and we're gonna get into it next week when Jacob and Esau see each other face to face what God had in store. Jacob had so much fear. But once he surrendered to the Lord, God took care of Esau. And there's a beautiful reconciliation between brothers because God has a plan. We need to stop wrestling with God. Stop trying to do things our way and toiling in the flesh to realize that his ways are greater he has a great plan. Will we just be surrendered to him? He doesn't want all of our stuff, all of our wealth, all of our ideas, all of our schemes and plans. He wants us. And let that be a call to you tonight, a call to repentance. Would you come to that place of surrender before the Lord? Maybe you have been wrestling your whole life. Surrender. Because he desires you. And it can't go on forever. You can't keep fighting against him. We could fast forward to another man whose name was changed in Paul. And what did he say to him? What did Jesus say to Paul when he appeared? Now, this is the, not the pre-incarnate Christ, but the resurrected Christ, after his ascension even, shows up to Paul on the road to Damascus and says, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. Enough already. In the same way that he says to Jacob, we can't do this. Let go. We can't do this all night. We can't do this your whole life. Stop fighting against God's ways. Surrender because he's faithful and he so much desires you, just you. Give yourself to Jesus. Surrender your life to Jesus and then watch what comes out of it. The blessing of Israel comes out of his surrender. The blessing, look at what comes out of the surrender of Paul. The early church, 
He planted so many churches. We have much of the New Testament, the inspired Word of God because of Paul's surrender. Give over your will to his will. And so tonight, as we close, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, simply I just invite you to give your life to him. Surrender to Jesus tonight. Stop fighting. Stop wrestling. Stop doing things your way. Give your life to him and watch how he blesses. And there is, as Ephesians says, there is spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. There is the great gift of eternal life. The greatest blessing there is, eternity in heaven.